Prologue, Sections 4 through 6 of The Fallen Leaves. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Steve Miller, Charlotte, North Carolina. The Fallen Leaves by Wilkie Collins. Prologue, Section 4. The bell, which gave five minutes' notice of the starting of the Ramsgate train, had just rung. While the other travellers were hastening to the platform, two persons stood passively apart as if they had not even yet decided on taking their places in the train. One of the two was a smart young man in the cheap travelling suit, mainly noticeable by his florid complexion, his restless dark eyes, and his profusely curling black hair. The other was a middle-aged woman in frowsy garments, tall and stout, sly and sullen. The smart young man stood behind the uncongenial-looking person with whom he had associated himself, using her as a screen to hide him while he watched the travelers on their way to the train. As the bell rang, the woman suddenly faced her companion and pointed to the railway clock. "'Are you waiting to make up your mind till the train has gone?' she asked. The young man frowned impatiently. "'I am waiting for a person whom I expect to see,' he answered. "'If the person travels by this train, we shall travel by it. If not, we shall come back here and look out for the next train, and so on till night-time if necessary.' The woman fixed her small, scowling gray eyes on the man as he replied in those terms. "'Look here,' she broke out. "'I'd like to see my way before me. You're a stranger, young mister, and as likely as not you've given me a false name and address. That don't matter. False names are commoner than true ones in my line of life. But mind this, I don't stir a step further till I've got half the money in my hand and my return ticket there and back.' "'Hold your tongue,' the man suddenly interposed in a whisper. "'It's all right. I'll get the tickets.' He looked while he spoke at an elderly traveller hastening by with his head down, deep in thought, noticing nobody. The traveller was Mr. Ronald. The young man who had that moment recognised him was his runaway porter, John Farnaby. Returning with the tickets... The porter took his repellent traveling companion by the arm and hurried her along the platform to the train. The money, she whispered, as they took their places. Farnaby handed it to her, ready wrapped up in a morsel of paper. She opened the paper, satisfied herself that no trick had been played on her, and leaned back in her corner to go to sleep. The train started. Old Ronald traveled by second class. His porter and his porter's companion accompanied him secretly by the third. End of Prologue, Section 4 Prologue, Section 5 It was still early in the afternoon when Mr. Ronald descended the narrow street which leads from the high land of the southeastern railway station to the port of Ramsgate. Asking his way of the first policeman whom he met, he turned to the left and reached the cliff on which the houses in Albion Place are situated. 
Farnaby followed him at a discreet distance, and the woman followed Farnaby. Arrived in the sight of the lodging house, Mr. Ronald paused, partly to recover his breath, partly to compose himself. He was conscious of a change of feeling as he looked up at the windows. His errand suddenly assumed a contemptible aspect in his own eyes. He almost felt ashamed of himself. After twenty years of undisturbed married life, was it possible that he had doubted his wife, and that at the instigation of a stranger whose name was even unknown to him? If she were to step out in the balcony and see me down here, he thought, what a fool I should look. He felt half inclined at the moment, when he lifted the knocker of the door, to put it back again quietly and return to London. No, it was too late. The maidservant was hanging up her birdcage in the area of the house. The maidservant had seen him. Does Mrs. Ronald lodge here? he asked. The girl lifted her eyebrows and opened her mouth, stared at him in speechless confusion, and disappeared in the kitchen regions. This strange reception of this inquiry irritated him unreasonably. He knocked with the absurd violence of a man who vents his anger on the first convenient thing that he can find. The landlady opened the door and looked at him in stern and silent surprise. "'Does Mrs. Ronald lodge here?' he repeated. The landlady answered with some appearance of effort, the effort of a person who was carefully considering her words before she permitted them to pass her lips. Mrs. Ronald has taken rooms here, but she has not occupied them yet. Not occupied them yet? The words bewildered him as if they had been spoken in an unknown tongue. He stood stupidly silent on the doorstep. His anger was gone, and all mastering fear throbbed heavily at his heart. The landlady looked at him and said to her secret self, just what I suspected. There is something wrong. Perhaps I have not sufficiently explained myself, sir, she resumed with grave politeness. Mrs. Ronald told me that she was staying at Ramsgate with friends. She would move into my house, she said, when her friends left, but they had not quite settled the day yet. She calls here for letters. Indeed, she was here early this morning to pay the second week's rent. I asked when she thought of moving in. She didn't seem to know. Her friends, as I understood, had not made up their minds. I must say, I thought it a little odd. Would you like to leave any message? He recovered himself sufficiently to speak. Can you tell me where her friends live? He said. The landlady shook her head. No, indeed. I offered to save Mrs. Ronald the trouble of calling here by sending letters or cards to her present residence. She declined the offer, and she has never mentioned the address. Would you like to come in and rest, sir? I will see that your card is taken care of, if you wish to leave it. Thank you, ma'am. It doesn't matter. Good morning. The landlady looked after him as he descended the house steps. It's the husband, Peggy she said to the servant waiting inquisitively behind her. Poor old gentleman, and such a respectable-looking woman, too. Mr. Ronald walked mechanically to the end of the row of houses, 
and met a wide grand view of the sea and sky. There were some seats behind the railing which fenced the edge of the cliff. He sat down, perfectly stupefied and helpless, on the nearest bench. At the close of life, the loss of a man's customary nourishment extends its debilitating influence rapidly from his body to his mind. Mr. Ronald had tasted nothing but his cup of coffee since the previous night. His mind began to wander strangely. He was not angry or frightened or distressed. Instead of thinking of what had just happened, he was thinking of his young days when he had been a cricket player. One special game revived in his memory, at which he had been struck on the head by the ball. Just the same feeling, he reflected vacantly, with his hat off and his hand on his forehead. Dazed and giddy, just the same feeling. He leaned back on the bench and fixed his eyes on the sea, and wondered languidly what had come to him. Farnaby and the woman, still following, waited round the corner where they could just keep him in view. The blue luster of the sky was without a cloud. The sunny sea leapt under the fresh westerly breeze. From the beach, cries of children at play, the shouts of donkey boys driving their poor beasts, the distant notes of brass instruments playing a waltz, and the mellow music of the small waves breaking on the sand, rose joyously together on the fragrant air. On the next bench, a dirty old boatman was prosing to a stupid old visitor. Mr. Ronald listened, with a sense of vacant content in the mere act of listening. The boatman's words found their way to his ears, like the other sounds that were abroad in the air. Yes, them's the Godwin Sands where you see a lightship, and that's the steamer there, towing a vessel into the harbour. That's the Ramsgate tug. Do you know what I would like to see? Ah, I should like to see the Ramsgate tug blow up. Why? I'll tell you why. I belong to Broadstairs. I don't belong to Ramsgate. Very well. I'm idling here, as you might see, without one copper piece in my pocket to rub against another. What trade do I belong to? I don't belong to no trade. I belong to a boat. The boat's riding at Broadstairs for want of work. And all along of what? All along of the tug. The tug has taken the bread out of our mouths, me and my mates. Wait a bit. I'll show you how. What did a ship do in the good old times when she got on them sands? Godwin Sands. Went to pieces if it come on to blow, or got sucked down little by little when it was fair weather. Now I'm coming to it. What did we do in the good old times, mind you, when we happened to see a ship in distress? Out with the boat, blow high or blow low, out with our boat. And save the lives of the crew, did you say? Well, yes, saving the crew was part of the day's work, to be sure, the part we didn't get paid for. We saved the cargo master and got salvage. Hundreds of pounds, I tell you, divided amongst us by law. Ah, those times are gone. A parcel of sneaks get together and subscribe to build a steam tug. And when a ship gets on the sands now, out goes the tug, night and day alike. Brings her safe into harbor and takes the bread out of our mouths. Shameful. That's what I call it. Shameful. The last words of the boatman's lament fell lower, 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 on Mr. Ronald's ears. 
He lost them altogether. He lost the view of the sea. He lost the sense of the wind blowing over him. Suddenly he was roused as if from a deep sleep. On one side, the man from Broadstairs was shaking him by the collar. I say, master, cheer up. What's come to you? On the other side, a compassionate lady was offering her smelling bottle. I'm afraid, sir, you have fainted. He struggled to his feet and vacantly thanked the lady. The man from Broadstairs, with an eye to salvage, took charge of the human wreck and towed him to the nearest public house. Chopping a glass of brandy and water, said this good Samaritan of the nineteenth century. That's what you want. I'm peckish myself. I'll keep you company. He was perfectly passive in the hands of anyone who would take charge of him. He submitted as if he had been the boatman's dog and had heard the whistle. It could only truly be said that he had come to himself when there had been time enough for him to feel the reanimating influence of the food and drink. Then he got to his feet and looked with incredulous wonder at the companion of his meal. The man from Broadstairs opened his greasy lips and was silenced by the sudden appearance of a gold coin between Mr. Ronald's finger and thumb. Don't speak to me. Pay the bill and bring me the change outside. When the boatman joined him, he was reading a letter, walking to and fro, and speaking at intervals to himself. God help me, have I lost my senses? I don't know what to do next. He referred to the letter again. If you don't believe me, ask Mrs. Turner, number one, Slane's Row, Ramsgate. He put the letter back in his pocket and rallied suddenly. Slane's Row he said, turning to the boatman. Take me there directly and keep the change for yourself. The boatman's gratitude was apparently beyond expression in words. He slapped his pocket cheerfully and that was all. Leading the way inland, he went downhill and uphill again, then turned aside towards the eastern extremity of town. Farnaby, still following with the woman behind him, stopped when the boatman diverged towards the east and looked up at the name of the street. "'I've got my instructions,' he said. "'I know where he's going. Step out. We'll get there before him by another way.' Mr. Ronald and his guide reached a row of poor little houses with poor little gardens in front of them and behind them. The back windows looked out on downs and fields lying on either side of the road to Broadstairs. It was a lost and lonely spot, the guide stopped and put a question with inquisitive respect. What number, sir? Mr. Ronald had sufficiently recovered himself to keep his own counsel. That will do, he said. You can leave me. The boatman waited a moment. Mr. Ronald looked at him. The boatman was slow to understand that his leadership had gone from him. You're sure you don't want me any more? he said. Quite sure, Mr. Ronald answered. The man from Broadstairs retired with his salvage to comfort him. Number one was at the farther extremity of the row of houses. When Mr. Ronald rang the bell, the spies were already posted. The woman loitered on the road within view of the door. Farnaby was out of sight round the corner, watching the house over the low wooden palings of the back garden. A lazy-looking man in his shirt-sleeves opened the door. "'Mrs. Turner at home,' 
he repeated. Well, she's at home, but she's too busy to see anybody. What's your pleasure? Mr. Ronald declined to accept excuses or to answer questions. I must see Mrs. Turner directly, he said, on important business. His tone and manner had their effect on the lazy man. What name? he asked. Mr. Ronald declined to mention his name. Give my message, he said. I won't detain Mrs. Turner more than a minute. The man hesitated and opened the door of the front parlor. An old woman was fast asleep on a ragged little sofa. The man gave up the front parlor and tried the back parlor next. It was empty. Please to wait here, he said, and went away to deliver his message. The parlor was a miserably furnished room. Through the open window, the patch of back garden was barely visible under the fluttering rows of linen hanging out on the lines to dry. A pack of dirty cards and some plain needlework littered the bare little table. A cheap American clock ticked with stern and steady activity on the mantelpiece. A smell of onions was in the air. A torn newspaper with stains of beer on it lay on the floor. There was some sinister influence in the place, which affected Mr. Ronald painfully. He felt himself trembling and sat down on one of the rickety chairs. The minutes followed one another wearily. He heard a trampling of feet in the room above. Then a door opened and closed. Then the rustle of a woman's dress on the stairs. In a moment more the handle of the parlor door was turned. He rose in anticipation of Mrs. Turner's appearance. The door opened. He found himself face to face with his wife. End of Prologue, Section 5Prologue, Section 6 John Farnaby, posted at the garden paling, suddenly lifted his head and looked towards the open window of the back parlor. He reflected for a moment. Then he joined his female companion on the road in front of the house. "'I want you at the back garden,' he said. "'Come along.' "'How much longer am I to be kept kicking my heels in this wretched hole?' the woman asked sulkily. "'As much longer as I please, if you want to go back to London with the other half of the money.' He showed it to her as he spoke. She followed him without another word. Arrived at the paling, Farnaby pointed to the window and to the back garden door which was left ajar. "'Speak softly,' he whispered. "'Do you have voices in the house?' I don't hear what they're talking about, if that's what you mean. I don't hear either. Now mind what I tell you. I have reasons of my own for getting a little nearer to that window. Sit down under the paling, so that you can't be seen from the house. If you hear a row, you may take it for granted that I am found out. In that case, go back to London by the next train, and meet me at the terminus at two o'clock tomorrow afternoon. If nothing happens, wait where you are till you hear from me or see me again. He laid his hand on the low paling and vaulted over it. 
The linen hanging up in the garden to dry offered him a means of concealment, if anyone happened to look out the window, of which he skillfully availed himself. The dustbin was at the side of the house, situated at a right angle to the parlor window. He was safe behind the bin, provided no one appeared on the path, which connected the patch of garden at the back with the patch in front. Here, running the risk, he waited and listened. The first voice that reached his ears was the voice of Mrs. Ronald. She was speaking with a firmness of tone that astonished him. "'Hear me to the end, Benjamin,' she said. "'I have a right to ask as much as that of my husband, and I do ask it. If I had been bent on nothing but saving the reputation of our miserable girl, you would have a right to blame me for keeping you ignorant of the calamity that has fallen on us.' There the voice of her husband interposed sternly. Calamity? Say disgrace! Everlasting disgrace! Mrs. Ronald did not notice the interruption. Sadly and patiently she went on. But I had a harder trial still to face, she said. I had to save her, in spite of herself, from the wretch who has brought this infamy on us. He has acted throughout in cold blood. It is his interest to marry her, and from the first to the last he has plotted to force the marriage on us. For God's sake, don't speak loud. She is in the room above us. If she hears you, it will be the death of her. Don't suppose I am talking at random. I have looked at his letters to her. I have got the confession of the servant girl. Such a confession! Emma is his victim, body and soul. I know it. I know that she has sent him money, my money, from this place. I know that the servant, at her instigation, informed him by telegraph of the birth of the child. Oh, Benjamin, don't curse the poor helpless infant. Such a sweet little girl. Don't think of it. I don't think of it. Show me the letter that brought you here. I want to see this letter. Ah, I can tell you who wrote it. He wrote it. In his own interest, always with his own interests in view. Don't you see it for yourself? If I succeeded in keeping the shame and misery a secret from everybody, if I take Emma away to some place abroad on pretense of her health, there is an end of this hope of becoming your son-in-law. There is an end of his being taken into the business. Yes, he, the low-lived vagabond who puts up the shop shutters, he looks forward to being taken into partnership and succeeding you when you die. Isn't his object in writing that letter as plain to you now as the heaven above us? His one chance is to set your temper aflame, to provoke the scandal of a discovery, and to force the marriage on us as the only remedy left. Am I wrong for making any sacrifice rather than bind our girl for life, our own flesh and blood, to such a man as that? Surely you can feel for me and forgive me now. How could I own the truth to you before I left London, knowing you as I do? How could I expect you to be patient, to go into hiding, to pass under a false name, to do all the degrading things that must be done if we are to keep Emma out of this man's way. 
No, I know no more than you do where Farnaby is to be found. Hush, there's the doorbell. It's the doctor's time for his visit. I tell you again, I don't know, on my sacred word of honor, I don't know where Farnaby is. Oh, be quiet, be quiet. There's the doctor going upstairs. Don't let the doctor hear you. So far she had succeeded in composing her husband. But the fury which she had innocently roused in him, in her eagerness to justify herself, now broke beyond all control. "'You lie!' he cried furiously. "'If you know everything else about it, you know where Farnaby is. I'll be the death of him if I swing for it on the gallows. Where is he? Where is he?' A shriek from the upper room silenced him before Mrs. Ronald could speak again. His daughter had heard him. His daughter had recognized his voice. A cry of terror from her mother echoed the cry from above. The sound of the opening and closing of the door followed instantly. Then there was a momentary silence. Then Mrs. Ronald's voice was heard from the upper room calling to the nurse, asleep in the front parlor. The nurse's gruff tones were just audible, answering from the parlor door. There was another interval of silence, broken by another voice, a stranger's voice, speaking at the open window close by. "'Follow me upstairs, sir, directly,' the voice said in peremptory tones. As your daughter's medical attendant, I tell you in the plainest terms that you have seriously frightened her. In her critical condition, I decline to answer for her life, unless you make the attempt at least to undo the mischief you have done. Whether you mean it or not, soothe her with kind words. Say you have forgiven her. No, I have nothing to do with your domestic troubles. I have only my patient to think of. I don't care what she asks of you. You must give way to her now. If she falls into convulsions, she will die, and her death will be at your door. So with feebler and feebler interruptions from Mr. Ronald, the doctor spoke. It ended plainly in his being obeyed. The departing footsteps of the men were the next sounds to be heard. After that, there was a pause of long silence a long pause broken by Mrs. Ronald calling again from the upper regions. "'Take the child into the back parlor, nurse, and wait till I come to you. It's cooler there at this time of the day.' The wailing of an infant and the gruff complaining of the nurse were the next sounds that reached Farnaby in his hiding place. The nurse was grumbling to herself over the grievance of having been awakened from her sleep. After being up all night, a person wants rest. There's no rest for anybody in this house. My head's as heavy as lead, and every bone in me has got an ache in it. Before long, the renewed silence indicated that she had succeeded in hushing the child to sleep. Farnaby forgot the restraints of caution for the first time. His face flushed with excitement. He ventured nearer to the window in his eagerness to find out what might happen next. After no long interval, the next sound came, a sound of heavy breathing, 
which told him that the drowsy nurse was falling asleep again. The windowsill was within reach of his hands. He waited until the heavy breathing deepened to snoring. Then he drew himself up by the windowsill and looked into the room. The nurse was fast asleep in an armchair, and the child was fast asleep on her lap. He dropped softly to the ground again, taking off his shoes and putting them in his pockets. He ascended the two or three steps which led to the half-open back garden door. Arrived in the passage, he could just hear them talking upstairs. They were no doubt still absorbed in their troubles. He had only the servant to dread. The splashing of water in the kitchen informed him that she was safely occupied in washing. Slowly and softly he opened the back parlor door and stole across the room to the nurse's chair. One of her hands still rested on the child. The serious risk was the risk of waking her if he lost his presence of mind and hurried it. He glanced at the American clock on the mantelpiece. The result relieved him. It was not so late as he had feared. He knelt down to steady himself, as nearly as possible on a level with the nurse's knees. By a hair's breadth at a time, he got both hands under the child. By a hair's breadth at a time, he drew the child away from her, leaving her hand resting on her lap, by degrees so gradual that the lightest sleeper could not have felt the change. That done, barring accidents, all was done. Keeping the child resting easily on his left arm, he had his right hand free to shut the door again. Arrived at the garden steps, a slight change passed over the sleeping infant's face. The delicate little creature shivered as it felt the full flow of the open air. He softly laid over its face a corner of the woolen shawl in which it was wrapped. The child reposed as quietly on his arm as if it had still been on the nurse's lap. In a minute more he was at the paling. The woman rose to receive him with the first smile that had crossed her face since they had left London. "'So you've caught the baby,' she said. "'Well, you are a deep one.' "'Take it,' he answered irritably. "'We haven't a moment to lose.' Only stopping to put on his shoes, he led the way towards the more central part of town. The first person he met directed him to the railway station. It was close by. In five minutes more, the woman and the baby were safe in the train to London. "'There's the other half of the money,' he said, handing it to her through the carriage window. The woman eyed the child in her arms with a frowning expression of doubt. "'All very well as long as it lasts,' she said. "'And what after that?' "'Of course, I shall come see you,' he answered." She looked hard at him and expressed the whole value she set on that assurance in four words. Of course you will. The train started for London. Farnaby watched it as it left the platform, with a look of unfeigned relief. There, he thought to himself, Emma's reputation is safe enough now. When we are married, 
We mustn't have a love child in the way of our prospects in life. Leaving the station, he stopped at the refreshment room and drank a glass of brandy and water. Something to screw me up, he thought, for what is to come. What was to come after he had got rid of the child had been carefully considered by him on the journey to Ramsgate. Emma's husband that is to be, he had reasoned it out, will naturally be the first person Emma wants to see when the loss of the baby has upset the house. If old Ronald has a grain of affection left in him, he must let me marry her after that. Acting on this view of his position, he took the way that led back to Slane's row and rang the doorbell, as became a visitor who had no reasons for concealment now. The household was doubtless already disorganized by the discovery of the child's disappearance. Neither master nor servant was active in answering the bell. Farnaby submitted to be kept waiting with perfect composure. There are occasions on which a handsome man is bound to put his personal advantages to their best use. He took out his pocket comb and touched up the arrangement of his whiskers with a skilled and gentle hand. Approaching footsteps made themselves heard along the passage at last. Farnaby put back his comb and buttoned his coat briskly. Now for it, he said, as the door was opened at last. End of Prologue Recorded by Steve Miller, Charlotte, North Carolina